Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Greetings, Gateway. Um, It's lovely to be at your place. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, This morning, we're going to start a new series. Um, People people who know me well know that I have a liking for, uh, some would perhaps unkindly say have an addiction to, or an obsession with licorice all sorts. I I will only admit to the fact that they are my favourite form of confectionery. And I'll go further and confess that when Pascal stopped making them in 2015, I was really close to entering therapy, so you can draw your own conclusions. Um, by the way, that's not a shameless pl- plug for people to rush out and buy me some, uh, unless, of course, you feel led by the Lord to do so, in which case the hours, uh, the office hours for a drop-off are... No, only, only kidding. Um, the reason I mention all sorts is I thought of them as I commenced this next series of messages because it is a bit of an all sorts series. It's a book study. We're going to be looking at the book of Exodus. It's a character study. We're going to be looking at the life of Moses. It's a topical study. We're going to be talking about God's deliverance and God's deliverers. And of necessity, of course, it's going to be expositional. So as I say, it's a bit of an all sorts series. My hope and prayer is that the mixture won't leave you, uh, as often too many all sorts leave me, somewhat bloated and a bit nauseous. The book of Exodus is our second book of the Bible, and I suspect that many of us, probably most of us, are reasonably, reasonably familiar with at least the first part of the story. The older members of our community will remember the classic Cecil B. DeMilm's Ten Commandments, while the younger members of our congregation and community will probably be more familiar with Steven Spielberg's The Prince of Egypt. It is the great ultimate escape story. Again, some of you will remember a movie called The Great Escape, starring Steve McQueen. It was a story that was based on a real-life escape of 76 Allied soldiers or airmen from Stalag Luft III on the 24th of March 1944. And as dramatic as that escape was, the reality is only three of the escapees ever made it back to Britain. In the book of Exodus, over two million men, women and children escaped, and they all made it out of Egypt. The word exodus means exit or departure, and of course it focuses on God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery and bondage under the ministry of Moses and his brother Aaron. And Exodus is the great epic of the Old Testament. It is to the Old Testament what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to the New Testament. It's the gold standard of God's saving and delivering power. And it actually takes five books of the Bible to tell the whole story. The journey out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and into the promised land occupies the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and of course, Joshua. The late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs called the book of Exodus a meta-narrative of hope. And it details, of course, how an oppressed, downtrodden group of slaves were liberated from the iron-like grip of the mightiest empire of the ancient world. And as a consequence, it is a story that for centuries has functioned as a beacon of hope and a paradigm for people who have been victimized by oppressive systems of one form or another. 
In the 17th century, it inspired the English Puritans in their struggle against an oppressive king. It was engraved on the hearts of the Pilgrim Fathers as they set it out in search of the promised land of the new world. Afro-American slaves saying, Go down Moses, way down in Egypt's land, and tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. And Negro spirituals were, and black theology is, permeated with Exodus imagery and language. Martin Luther King often referred to and drew inspiration from the story of Exodus and the leadership of Moses during the civil rights movements in the U.S., Southern American liberation theologians have considered Exodus to be paradigmatic for their reflections on their experience of oppression. And the anti-apartheid movement of the late 20th century drew deeply and regularly from the book of Exodus during their struggle to break the fetters of that dehumanizing system. As Rabbi Sachs noted, there has probably been no other story in the history of mankind that has been more influential in the shaping of the inner landscape of freedom. So the Exodus is a powerful symbol of and a message that the present situation, however oppressive, does not define the possibilities uh, or, the, or what is possible for God. With God, Deliverance, redemption, change, newness, they are all lively, hope-filled possibilities. So Exodus is about deliverance and deliverance. But it isn't just about a historical event and an ancient people. It isn't a story that relates specifically to then, there, and them. It is meant to be personal. It's God's message to here, now, me, and you. The message of the story is that God of Exodus, the God of Exodus is, is our God. And he's a God who breaks oppressive entrenched powers that enslave people, both groups and individuals. It's the great template. Exodus is the great template that God has left us to show how people can be free from the Egyptian bondage of their lives. And the rich template of Exodus reveals the steps that need to be taken and the path that needs to be trod as we travel what Nelson Mandela referred to as the long road to freedom. It's incredibly easy for people to simply read and approach Exodus as they would a historical novel. A great story, but with little practical relevance to people who are removed from the events. For a lot of people, all they know about Egypt is that there were pyramids and that a 1980s group called the Bengals sang about how they walked. Uh, Walk Like an Egyptian was one of those songs that got endlessly trotted out as the party got more and more lubricated. But when the Bible speaks about Egypt, it isn't simply speaking about a geographical location. It includes that, of course, but it's used symbolically to talk about the ways that this world so easily attract, capture, enslave, and then diminish people. Exodus is as relevant as tomorrow's newspaper. And if you aren't convinced, then I would suggest you reread the early chapters of the story and substitute the words Egyptian slave masters with the, modern, with the words modern-day addictions. Since we live in a culture that has enshrined self and self-indulgence, it should come as no surprise to us that addictions are ubiquitous and that they drive and enslave us every bit as cruelly as the Egyptian masters did the Israelites. 
Art Glasser, who was a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, noted, addictions are the dominant form that possessive and destructive evil has taken in our culture. And the number and type of addiction and addictive masters seems to know no bounds in our culture, whether it's alcohol, nicotine, drugs, sexual addictions, codependent relationships. Some wag commented that you know you're, co you're codepend codependent, that when you are dying, somebody else's life flashes before you. But sexual addictions, pornography, food, shopping, exercise, the internet, um, binds so many people. Actually, I was talking to my grandchildren the other day and I told them that uh, YouTube, Facebook and Twitter were all combining in one giant uh, URL and that you'd be able to reach them at utwitface.com. They thought that was funny. Some people are addicted to adrenaline and I'm not necessarily talking about bungee jumping. Although that's probably included, I know some pastors that I would say their ability to solve adrenaline pumping crises is surpassed only by their ability to create them in the first place. Some of us need to have that kind of lifestyle. We are addicted to it. E Egypt might seem a long way off, but the addictive experience is the human experience. And some have said to be human is to be addicted. And if you're not convinced, perhaps we could read a portion from the latter part of Romans chapter 7. The message translation goes like this. The power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions. I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. I think every addict knows the power of those words. And like Israelites, we need deliverance, redemption, salvation, and grace. Now, my next observation is not intended to bludgeon us addicts uh, with some kind of blunt instrument, but I would like to suggest that our culture's nearly exclusive reliance on the disease metaphor when it comes to dealing with and describing addiction is, at the very least, incomplete. To categorize all addictions as sickness, as helpful as that might be in some places, it takes no account of sin and personal responsibility, at least in the beginning stages of addiction. At its heart, addiction is ultimately a disorder of worship. It's putting lesser things in the ultimate place. And it's not coincidental that one of the key themes of Exodus and one of the ultimate goals of the Exodus is true worship. The book of Exodus finishes with the glory of God filling the tabernacle that the people built for the worship of God and for the housing of his presence. And as we progress through Exodus, I think you will see how profoundly relevant it is for those of us who struggle with addictive behaviors. Let me, let me give you an example. Now, although in this story it is the Israelites that are the slaves, you can see clearly that their masters, the Egyptians, were equally addicted in, in terms of their own issues. Pharaoh is hopelessly addicted to power and control. In Exodus chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, it says, Pharaoh called in Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to God to rid us of these frogs. I'll release the people so they can make their sacrifices and worship God. Moses said to Pharaoh, Certainly. 
set the time. When do you want the frogs out of here, away from your servants and people and out of your houses? You'll be rid of the frogs except for those in the Nile. Pharaoh responds, make it tomorrow. That is classic addiction language. When do you want to be free from your addiction to licorice all sorts? And I respond, well, tomorrow. The language of addicts is always tomorrow. And it isn't until it becomes today, now, that you know the addict is serious. I'll stop watching porn tomorrow. I'll, I'll, I'll get my eating habits under control tomorrow. I'll address my gambling habit tomorrow. When Pharaoh is cornered in his addiction to power and control, he responds with classic addiction responses. You know, kind of, let's be responsible about this. You can't expect me to give it up all at once. I'll do it bit by bit. I'll only engage my addictions on days that begin with T, Tuesdays and Thursdays. But of course, we all know that Tuesdays and Thursdays become Tatterdays and Tundays. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 25, Pharaoh is under pressure, the intensity of the plagues are increasing, and his total denial gives way to the next stage of bargaining. So Pharaoh calls in Moses and Aaron and says, all right, all right, I'll let you go. Go ahead, sacrifice your God, but, but do it in Egypt. Do it in the country. If you have to sacrifice to Yahweh, do it here in Egypt. Moses responds that the Israelites have to go on a three-day journey. And the three-day journey, of course, is, exit, is, is hints of, of resurrection territory. Verse 28, Pharaoh responds, All right, I'll release you. Go and sacrifice to your God in the wilderness. Only don't go too far. He isn't serious about losing control. And so God has to up the ante. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 11, he says, All right, all right, you can go, but only the men can go. go the men can go and worship God. Women and children have to stay behind. And Pharaoh is smart enough to know that the men will be back for their families. Moses and Yahweh are unrelenting in pushing Pharaoh, and he's forced to concede again. And in chapter 10, verse 24, he says, All right, go and worship God, but leave your flocks and your herds. You can take your wives and your children, but leave your economic resources behind. Again, he knows they'll be back. There's this, first of all, denial, then the bargaining. But God wants his people free. Not, not somewhat free, not almost free, not mostly free, but free and free indeed. We, we know that passage in John chapter 8 very, very well. 8.32, it says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The New King James says, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So you can be set free, but you also have to be made free. We need both those two things. You can set a slave free in, in an instant, just like that. You can undo the fetters and set them free. But we all know that to make that person free in their thinking and in their behavior may take a lot longer. To be set free is an event. To be made free is a process. Both are needed and Exodus is about both. The event is a sovereign work of God's grace. The process requires our participation and partnership. And we see that pattern repeated again and again and again throughout the book of Exodus. On the surface of the text, God delivers Israel from Egyptian bondage by a series of sovereign signs and wonders. And Israel plays virtually no role. They are the passive recipients of God's miracle working power. But there's another subtext which is nuanced quite differently. 
Throughout the book of Exodus, there are a series of double narratives, the significance of which becomes clear when we place them side by side. So, for example, there are two battles in the book of Exodus, one before the Red Sea and one after the crossing of the Red Sea. The first is against Pharaoh and his chariots in Exodus 14. The second is against the Amalekites in Exodus 17. There are also two sets of stone tablets recording God's revelation, one before the episode of the golden calf and the second after the people had been forgiven for their idolatrous worship of the calf. There are two occasions in the book of Exodus where God is revealed in his glory. The first at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. The second at the end of the book of Exodus when God's glory fills the tabernacle in Exodus 40. The Sinai covenant was declared twice. The first time by God in Exodus 20. The second time by Moses reading from the book of the covenant in Exodus 24. And there are two accounts of the construction of the tabernacle. The first before the incident of the golden calf, and it occupies Exodus 25 to 30. And the second after the incident with the calf, and that occupies Exodus 35 to 40. Now, these pairs share a common feature. In each case, the first is a sovereign work of God's grace and power alone. But the second involves Israel's participation and partnership. Israel didn't have to fight the Egyptians. You can read in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 14, it says, the Lord will fight for you and you can hold your peace. Or as the Knox translation says, your part is silence. But Israel did have to fight the second battle against the Amalekites in Exodus 17. The first stone tablet was the work of God alone. In Exodus 31 verse 18, it says it's written by the finger of God on the tablets of stone. But the second one involved Moses. God said to Moses, write down the words, for by these words I've made a covenant with you in Israel. And he, Moses, wrote on the tablet the words of the covenant. At Mount Sinai, God, uh, Israel played no part in constructing the space in which God's glory appeared. But the second time it appeared, it was in the tabernacle that Israel had constructed. The first account of the tabernacle involves God's instructions as to how it was to be constructed. But the second is about the people carrying out those instructions. So as you look at those two those peers, in each case, the first of the peered episodes involves God working alone and sovereignly. The second involves Israel's participation. God's deliverance in Exodus is a double story. He delivers miraculously, but if those miracles are to have a lasting effect, people partner and make a contribution. And so we have divine sovereignty and human responsibility finely balanced. The second without the first is futile, but the first without the second is wasted. God sets us free. We can't free ourselves, but then he partners with us and empowers us so that we can be made free. And we do partner and, and, and contribute to that process. Without him, we cannot, but without us, he will not. So freedom is more than a moment of triumph. It's also a constant endeavor. And the moment, if it isn't combined with the endeavor, can be lost. We have examples of this historically, politically. What made revolutions like the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution fail was the naive belief that simply by setting people free from the dominating entrenched powers, they would be free indeed. 
You know, revolutionary change is rapid, but changing human nature can be a slow process and it cannot be forced. There's a passage in the book of Isaiah that I think Moffat translates brilliantly and it's talking about Israel sowing their seeds. And it says, you force the growth the very day after you plant them till they bloom for you the next morning. But all you get from them shall vanish on the day of your grief and sorrow. You can't force growth. It takes time. There are no shortcuts on the long road to freedom. It involves, as Eugene Peterson says, a long obedience in the same direction. God isn't in a hurry. He wasn't in a hurry with Israel and he's not in a hurry with you and I. And so that's why in the New Testament we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, says Paul. Peter says, grow up into your salvation. The West translation of 1 Peter 2.2 2 says, making progress in your salvation. That's, that's the process after God sovereignly gives us the event. You know, I suspect we Pentecostals that are committed to God's present-day miracle-working deliverance, we are especially susceptible to making the event of freedom the be-all and end-all of God's purposes. And I, and I hear people saying things like, well, we need revival, Don. We need miracles, and then we'll see people transformed. Well, yes, yes, and possibly not. We do need the supernatural events, but disconnected from daily discipleship, the transformation that we long for may well not occur. Supernatural events didn't transform King Saul. If you read the story of Saul, you see that there was a time where he spent 24 hours laying under the power of God prophesying, and yet it didn't change him. The communities that Jesus ministered into, Chorazin, Bethsaida, saw the miracle work and grace of God in action, but it didn't see change. I have, and probably you have too, seen many people supernaturally encountered by God who, as a result, actually weren't changed. You know, ancient Jewish mystics used to talk about two different types of divine human encounters. They talked about the awakening from above and the awakening from below. The awakening from above is equivalent to our supernatural event about people being set free. But the rabbis noted that unless this was combined with an awakening from below, the process being made free, then change, any change, was liable to be short-lived. We need, we need both. Exodus is a record of both. Let's pray and work for both. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.